Our scripture lesson today is taken from the Gospel of John, the second chapter, beginning at verse 12 and reading through the end of the chapter with particular attention to verses 12 through 22. John chapter 2, page 1222, 1222 in the Pew Bible. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they did not stay there many days. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money, and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them, because he knew all men, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, we saw last week that Jesus is the greater Moses. Moses turned water into blood. The water of the Nile, the Nile which the people of Egypt worshipped as a god. He turned it to blood and made it a curse, made it a source of death to them. But Jesus turns water into wine. Wine that not only represents blood, but blood that washes sins away and brings great joy. For wine is not only a symbol of blood in scripture, it is a symbol of joy. Jesus brings joy because he turns water into the blood of cleansing that cleanses us from our sin and enables us to be reconciled to God and to become his bride, to become the bride of God, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us with a deep and warm and intimate love as a husband rejoices over his bride. So God rejoices over his people as his bride. But now there's also another Contrast in this passage between Moses and Jesus, although Moses isn't mentioned directly, but we know that Moses is very much connected with the temple. He built a temple called the tabernacle. It was called tabernacle because it was a tent, but the tabernacle was a temple. It was a house for God. And now we find Jesus in the house for God, and uh, he's doing a work there. Like Moses, Moses built it, and Jesus is coming to bring us a better temple, 
than the one that is built by human hands. We want to take note of two things. That first, Jesus cleanses the temple. And secondly, that he replaces the temple. Jesus comes to cleanse the temple. Why did he have to come to cleanse the temple? Well, because the worship of the temple had become corrupted. Animals were needed for sacrifice. And since most worshipers at the festivals were travelers, local merchants sold animals which the worshipers could buy and use. At one time, there was a market across the Kidron Valley on the slopes of the Mount of Olives where animals were purchased and then brought into the city for sacrifice. But in the time of Jesus, that market had been moved into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and that had become the marketplace for the selling of animals used in sacrifice. It was also the case that when people came, they had to pay a temple tax. And... uh, The Levites would only allow them to pay with a certain kind of currency. Most of the currencies, there were many currencies in circulation in those days, and most of them had pictures of uh, uh, Roman or Greek gods on them, or people who claimed, uh, humans who claimed to be divine, and such were not acceptable in the temple to honor the true God, and so they had to uh, buy the sanctuary shekel, and so there were money changers. And so they turned uh, the building that was supposed to be the, the focal point of the worship of God in a house of prayer was filled with the noise of cattle, filled with the noise of sheep, and uh, filled with the noise of commerce. Not only that, but Luke tells us in his account of the cleansing of the temple, and by the way, uh, the other Gospels tell us of a cleansing that took place uh, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, Uh, John tells us of one that took place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Some uh, point to this and say, obviously, they can't both be right. Uh, The Bible's full of mistakes. When was it? Was it at the beginning or was it at the end? Well, it's not obvious that it can't be both. In fact, it's uh, very likely that it was both, that uh, the Jews, uh, after Jesus did it once, went back to their old uh, practices, and at the end of his ministry, because this was such a vital concern to him, he did it again to impress upon the people who were gathered uh, three years later of the need for right worship of God. But anyway, Luke tells us in his account that uh, Jesus condemns them as a a den of robbers, meaning not only had they turned the place into a a, a, a commercial emporium, uh, a store, and a uh, place where money is uh, changed and so forth, but they were were doing it fraudulently to, to enrich themselves. Some have speculated that the Levites probably rejected any animal that hadn't been purchased in the court of the Gentiles. And uh, therefore, those who were selling in the court of the Gentiles had a monopoly. You know, you'd bring an animal, maybe you didn't live so far away, and you brought your own animal. And the priest would look at it and see that it wasn't one that had been sold in the marketplace. And so, oh no, that animal has a defect. You have to get get rid of that one and, and get one of the approved ones from the approved sellers. Of course, since the approved sellers had a monopoly, they could charge whatever they wanted. And then the priest would get a kickback and so forth. And the money exchangers also would charge exorbitant fees for the exchange and make a profit and share it with the Levites and... Yeah, they had not only made it a place of commerce, but they were 
fraudulently enriching themselves. Now, to understand why Jesus was so upset about this, we need to remember what the temple was supposed to be. It was supposed to be about fellowship with God. It's about coming near to God and experiencing His love and and His blessing. You know, we're created in His image. And uh, we'll consider a little bit more of that uh, later today. But uh, in brief, it's, it's to, to be his image bearers is so that we can know him, love him, serve him, and above all, be near to him, to live in fellowship with God. And the first temple on earth was the Garden of Eden, where God came in the cool of the day to fellowship with Adam and Eve, to enjoy blessed fellowship. Adam and Eve had that great privilege to, to know God as a God who comes down and comes near, comes to be with them. Of course, Adam and Eve sinned. And because they sinned, they weren't allowed to be near to God anymore. God can have no fellowship with sinners. And their case was hopeless unless God would, would open up a way for them to be able to come back and be near God again. And of course, God did open up a way for them to come back and be near to him again, not as near as they had been, but it was the way of justice and the way of mercy. The way of justice in that in order for them to come near to God, their sin had to be atoned for. It had to be paid for. Their record of guilt had to be dealt with, and so uh, a sacrifice had to be offered. They had to come back by the way of justice. But they also came back by a way of mercy in that God accepted a sacrificial uh, substitute so that they themselves didn't have to pay for their sins because that would be fatal and they would have to suffer and die. But God said, I will accept the death of a substitute in your place. And so God instituted animal sacrifice uh, in mercy to allow... Adam and Eve and their descendants to come back and come near to God through the atoning sacrifice of a substitute. Now, this sacrificial system, which was later developed, uh, it was practiced by the patriarchs, but uh, uh, institutionalized and uh, enlarged by Moses with temple ceremonies, it was designed to do at least three things for the worshiper. It was designed to humble the worshiper. The worshiper was to look at the animal on the altar and say, that's where I belong. I belong on the altar. I've sinned. I'm the one who has a bad record and has guilt, and and I deserve to die for my sins. And he sees the animal on the altar, and he's reminded that he deserves to die for his sins. But it was also designed to give the worshiper joy. God is willing to accept a substitute in my place. And... uh, and so that I can be, I can live, and and enjoy God again. So it was designed to humble the worshiper. It was designed to bring joy to the worshiper. But it was also designed to create a longing in the heart of the worshiper for a better sacrifice, because he realized that he had to do this over and over again. The ceremonies of the law were required to be repeated. 
Sacrifices were daily, uh, monthly, annual, and so forth. There were all kinds of sacrifices that had to be over, uh, offered over and over again. There was never one sacrifice that would cover all sin for all time so that we could be forever reconciled to God. And so the system was designed to create a longing for a better sacrifice. It was designed to humble, bring joy, and to teach them to look forward to a sacrifice that would make them well, uh, make them whole and well again once and for all. But that's not what was happening in the temple. It had become a market, a place of business, an emporium for buying and selling and exchanging uh, currencies. Jews and proselytes to, from, uh, came from all over the world uh, to uh, go to the money changers and exchange uh, the coin of the realm for with its images of Caesar and uh, so forth, and exchange it for the sanctuary uh, shekel. They would buy an animal for sacrifice. Uh, They would turn around, take a few steps, hand it to the priest, watch the priest uh, kill the animal, bow uh, in reverence uh, briefly, and then turn around and leave. Amid all the buying and selling and the exchange of currencies, the worshiper would watch the priest and then... uh, uh, finished whatever he had to do, and set out again to go home. No wonder Jesus was upset and made a whip to drive out the animals and threw over the tables. You remember that uh, in the previous uh, part of this chapter, when his mother uh, mentioned to him the need for wine, uh, he thought about his hour. Uh, and uh, his hour uh, was his death. He had come into this world to, to suffer and die so that people could have joy. And now he sees that, that they've turned the, the temple into a, a commercial enterprise. Instead of a, a grace-based religion, it was a commerce-based religion. A, commerce, a commercial enterprise where people were attempting to, to buy God's favor and the priests were very willing to sell it to them. Some people think that the application of this passage is that churches should not have book tables with theological books for sale. Well, that misses the point. The application of this passage is that we have to keep Jesus in the forefront of our attention and always remember what he came to do. He came to reconcile us to God through his death on the cross. The important thing thing is to keep our faith a a grace-based religion not a work-based religion, as if doing uh, all sorts of obligations is what reconciles us to God. Do this, go here, do that, line up at that table, then take what you've uh, purchased and go to this table, and then go to the priest, and then when you see the priest do his job, then uh, you watch, you bow down, and then you go home. You have this list of duties and obligations. It's costly. It'll cost you some money. You pay your money. You do your. Uh, you go to all the stations, and then you go home, and so you've fulfilled your obligation. That's that's turning religion into a commercial enterprise. Not remembering that Christ came into the world to to reconcile us to God, to humble us, the reminder of our sin and to uh, fill us with joy at the knowledge that he has provided a perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. Sadly, many, many people today, even those who go to church, uh, look upon the Christian life as just fulfilling duties and obligations, and they, they measure, now, have I done enough? You know, 
Uh, if, I, if I go to church once on Sunday, isn't that enough? Why do I have to do more? Well, you've made your religion a commercial religion. It's a matter of fulfilling obligations and duties, and you're measuring and saying to yourself, how much do I have to do? Do I have to read my Bible every day? Do I have to pray before every meal? How much do I have to do? What, what, what's my obligation? And we measure obligations, and we make lists, and we, we do what we think is right. And, and if somebody else tells us, we say, well, that's all right for you, but in my mind, that what I do is enough. Well, if you're always thinking in terms of, I'm doing enough, I don't have to do more, you're not remembering that salvation is by grace. Grace means you don't deserve it. Grace means that God has given you something that, that is a, a wonderful gift and that he's called you into to fellowship with him. You know, many times uh, parents are separated from their children, especially when the children grow older, and, uh, or husbands are separated from their wives because of business travel or something. And, and you, you long to, to see that person again. You long to, to hear their voice again. Many of you, thankfully, experience that with regard to church during March and, and, and April when we weren't allowed to, to come together. You, you realize that, that fellowship, not only fellowship with each other, but fellowship with, with God in the, in the midst of the congregation is, is something that we should look forward to and be eager to, to enjoy. That's how it's supposed to be for all of us. Ask yourself, is that the case? Are you anxious to hear God's voice every time you have opportunity to hear it? Or you say, well, I've heard enough for today. I don't need to come back again tonight. Uh, I, I, I've, I've fulfilled my obligation. The Jews turned temple worship into a commercial enterprise. The fulfilling of a list of duties and obligations, paying a price and satisfying conscience that they've done enough. Jesus says, that's not what this temple is all about. It's about being reconciled to God. It's about coming before Him and, and rejoicing in His presence because He has poured out on His love on us in Jesus Christ. Because He loves us and wants us as His bride, He comes into our lives. And, and maybe He needs to come into your life today and, and drive out with a whip some things that are preventing you from practicing a a grace-based religion. Maybe he needs to overturn some tables in your lives and, and make some changes in the way you're living so that you will be humbled and recognize your need to rejoice in his presence and be eager to worship and serve him not only on Sunday but every day of the week. Jesus loves us. And because he loves us, he deeply hates the things that are in our lives that keep us from experiencing His love and joy, the joy of being reconciled to a Father who loves us and a groom who loves us as His bride. But if our understanding of this passage is only that Jesus came to 
to call us back to a, a faith-based religion and, and clean up our, our worship so that we're not viewing it as a list of duties and obligations, then we've, we've missed the point uh, here. There's, a, there's another very important thing here, and that is that Jesus has come to, to replace the temple. He's standing in a temple and talks about a temple, but he's not talking about the temple he's standing in. Uh, in the midst of, he's talking about his own body. And in this, Jesus is, is showing us that he's come to replace the temple. This comes out when the Jews ask the question, by what authority do you do this? You come into the temple and you drive out the animals, you overthrow the tables. Why, why are you doing this? By what authority? Who gave you the right to do this? Now, the fact that they ask that question is rather interesting because it it shows that they have some regard for Jesus. You know, if, if somebody had just walked in there and started making a commotion, they would have thought, who's this hooligan? And they, they have security guards. They have Levites who are designed, to, who are delegated to keep uh, the civil peace in the temple uh, courts and so forth. And uh, somebody comes in who's drunk and disorderly. They have ways of dealing with that right away. But they don't treat him as someone drunk and disorderly. They don't treat him as some hooligan uh, who is just on a rampage. They come and say, hey, what are you doing here? Who gave you the authority to do this? And so uh, there is some indication here that they are already aware of Jesus and aware of his reputation, and they know that he has followers, and In the few verses just after our text, it says that many people believe because of the signs that he was performing. John doesn't tell us what kind of signs he's performing, but we know from the other Gospels that he's always performing miracles, particularly miracles of healing. And so they they know this man has a reputation, and yet they they challenge his authority and uh, come and, and ask this question. Well, they don't just ask... By what authority? They say, what sign do you perform? They might legitimately have the right to say, by what authority do you do this? But when they ask for a sign, they really go too far. They go too far because, first of all, they should have stopped and reflected on what Jesus did and asked themselves, is this something that needs to be done? (laughs) You know? This court of the Gentiles wasn't always a marketplace. We know that. We've, we've moved it here uh, ourselves, but it wasn't always the case. Maybe he's got a point. They should have, first of all, reflected on what Jesus was doing and considered whether this was legitimate and justified. Secondly, asking for a sign is somewhat uh, irreligious. You know, It's all right for God to give signs, to authenticate his messengers. That's what miracles were all about in the Bible, is God giving people the ability to perform signs to show that they spoke for God. But for us to go to someone and say, now prove that you're from God, is asking God to jump through hoops for us. And it's one thing for God to do it. It's quite another thing for us to demand it of God. We ought not to demand such things of God. It was uh, the weakness of uh, the faith of that uh, 
uh, Old Testament uh, saying to uh, uh, ask for a sign, the, uh, the fleece that was wet and dry and so forth. Uh, he didn't ask that out of the strength of his faith, but out of the weakness of his faith. And, and although God sometimes condescends to our weakness, we ought to recognize that we're not in a position where we have the right to say to God, God, prove yourself to me. God's already done that. And God had already done it here. He had, he had given a sign already. Jesus had given a sign in the temple. The sign was the cleansing of the temple, which was a fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, Malachi chapter 3 says, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Malachi prophesied that the Lord will come to the temple suddenly and be a refiner and refine the Levites like like gold and silver are refined by passing through the fire to burn out the dross, a violent act. Well, Jesus comes with, with great violence into the temple and upsets things to refine the Levites and to correct their abuses in fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, The disciples also see here a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has eaten me up, or as I prefer, zeal for your house has consumed me. He's filled with an all-consuming passion for the the house of God, and that uh, is in fulfillment of Scripture. Uh, They should have seen that this is what the Messiah was supposed to do. And so it is wicked of them to ask for a sign. But though it is wicked for them to ask for a sign, again, God condescends to their weakness, and Jesus gives them a sign. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. Now, they didn't understand, and the disciples did not understand at the time what he was referring to. He wasn't referring to the building. Had they taken him up on this, uh, thinking that he was referring to the building and destroyed the building, that would have been something. Uh, Jesus could have indeed rebuilt it in three days or, or less. He could have rebuilt it in the snap of a finger. And that certainly would have been a sign that he had authority to regulate the worship that goes on in that temple. But he knew, Jesus knew, that they would not take him up and uh, destroy the temple In fact, they would twist his words at his trial. They said that uh, Jesus said he would destroy the temple and build it up in in three days. And uh, he didn't say that he would destroy it. He invited them to destroy the temple. You destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. But of course, he wasn't referring to the building. He was referring to his own body. Jesus' body is a temple. How so? Well, the temple is God's house. It's where God dwells. It's where God comes near. When, when Moses built the, the tabernacle, the, the cloud, the glory cloud that shielded the people from seeing the brightness of God's glory, that glory cloud descended on the tabernacle and God took up residence in the midst of his people and God tented among them. And God came down and lived in the tent. And the same thing happened when, when Moses, when, when uh, Solomon built the temple. Uh, God's glory descended upon the temple and filled the temple so that the priests 
couldn't minister uh, for a time because God's glory was so great. And then, of course, in later years, when Israel sinned so terribly, uh, the prophet has a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. The temple was the place where God comes down and God comes near and God lives in the midst of his people. And that's what Jesus is all about. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And the fullness of the deity dwells in him in bodily form, we read in Colossians 2.9. Or if Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the, the ultimate revelation of the Father. John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, How long have I been with you and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Beginning of John's Gospel, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Greek word dwelt is literally the word tented. Jesus became flesh and tented among us. He tabernacled among us. He, He lived among us. He is God in human flesh, in the midst of his people, God with us, which is what the temple is all about. And so it's perfectly just and right that he refers to his own body as a temple. And indeed, they would destroy that temple. And in three days, he did raise it up again. They put him to death. Because in that temple, the temple of his body... The greatest sacrifice, the greatest temple sacrifice was performed. The shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His body became the site and the sacrifice of, uh, of that, uh, the site of the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. His body indeed is a temple. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, therefore, is a sign to you. That Jesus is the way to be reconciled to God. What the Old Testament temple represented and symbolized is fulfilled in Christ. We come to Christ now to be reminded of our sin. But we read in the, uh, in the preparatory form at the Lord's Supper, we come to be reminded of our sin, but we also become, come to the table of the Lord to remember that there is a sacrifice that takes away our sin. That's why they came to the temple. That's why we come to Christ, to be reminded of our sin and the the cleansing from our sin uh, that comes through the sacrifice that he has offered. Psalm 69, verse 9, that says, zeal for my father's house uh, consume me. It it, it describes that, that this zeal literally eats him up, consumes him. How far, how, how much does it consume him? Not only that he drove out the animals and overturned the tables, it it drives him so much that he offered his life to pay for our sins on the cross. His body is the temple. And you know, when you believe in Jesus, then you are united to Jesus. And because you're united to Jesus through faith, you share in everything that he has. And since his body is a temple, your body becomes a temple. At Pentecost, he poured out the Spirit. He received the Spirit, and then he poured out the Spirit. We read from Galatians 3, You shall receive the promised Holy Spirit. 
God no longer dwells in buildings. This is a nice building. This, this, uh, this church building is a, is a nice building, but it's not a temple. It's not the house of God. You are. Individually and corporately, you are the temple of God. Now God lives in you because Christ is a temple, because you are united to Christ. Your body is a temple. And the scripture says, honor God with your body. Take good care of it. Christ died to save it, and, and, and Christ by His Spirit and the Father, the Father and the, and, and the Son are now by the Spirit living in your body. Don't use it for immoral purposes. Take care of it and use it to bring honor and glory to Him by using all your strength. Use your gifts, whatever gifts He has given you to serve Him in this world to bring praise and honor and glory to Him. Use your body to sing His praises to rejoice in the salvation that is ours in Christ. This is his will for you who believe. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus was consumed with zeal for your house. May we also be filled with zeal for your house. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Recognizing that we are temples both individually and corporately, and desiring to be together, to rejoice and be glad and to sing your praise, to serve you day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.